0: Please take your Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Matthew. We will be in Matthew 28, 16 through 20 today. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. As you've been told, we are continuing in our series, The Disciplines of a Healthy Believer. And I have been tasked with the discipline of making disciples. Should we as Christ followers seek to make disciples? Absolutely, right? It should be something we pursue with our lives and our every day. And I think we'll see that clearly stated in our text this morning. Uh, You know what? Let's stand together as we read Matthew 28, 16 through 20. (coughs) And the text reads, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand this great mission that you have given to us. Help us to follow you as your disciples, that we would live according to who you are and what you've done for us, that we would bring you glory with our lives. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. A few years ago, in the year 1810, a young man fell in love with a girl named Anne, And he loved her so much that he wanted to marry her. And so the young man, as many of us men who married men have done, went to her father and asked his daughter's hand in marriage. Um, But unlike today... The permission that the young man sought had some really big ramifications because this man wanted to be a missionary in a far, far away land. And this this young man's name was Adoniram Judson. I don't know, maybe you've heard of him. And uh, let me just read to you this letter where he asks Anne's father for permission for her hand in marriage. It goes, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring. Pretty typical. To see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps even a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of the perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this? in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise, which shall resound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. Wow. Fathers in the room of of especially daughters. Man, what would you say to a letter like that, right? Uh, Anne's dad said yes, by the way. (coughs) And as a result. Let me just share with you, um, they got married and they, and they definitely faced some hardships. Um, she had three pregnancies, Anne did. The first one ended in a miscarriage. The, the second pregnancy, um, her second child was born and died at the age of eight months. Her third child only lived six months and died, and um, Anne herself died shortly after um, of smallpox. Uh, and in Adoniram, they suffered so much for the sake of Christ, but, but the reward was so much greater than the sacrifice. In their ministry, get this, it's reported that for the first 12 years, okay, 18, count it, 18 converts uh, as a result of their ministry, 18. A lot of pastors, if they only had 18 people in their congregation, they just quit, Okay. But when Adoniram died, he left 100 churches and over 8,000 believers. And even today, it is estimated that Burma has 2.5 million evangelical Christians living in Myanmar, which is modern-day Burma. I think it's fair to say that the Judsons, Adoniram and Anne, both considered the commission of Christ, the commission that we just read in Matthew, they considered it to be great. This morning I was given the freedom to choose any text as long as it dealt with the subject of making disciples. And it only took me 1.25 seconds to land on this passage, the Great Commission. It's a no-brainer, right? But I did hesitate for a second afterwards because I realized something about my obvious choice. That many people in this room today, this is a text that you've probably heard preached before. This is a text that you've probably read books about before, or have studied this passage, or I, I bet some of you even have this passage memorized, right? And, and that could be a little daunting for someone that's going to step up here and, and teach on the Great Commission. So, such a familiar passage. But as I thought and prayed about this selection, I realized that though this text is familiar to many, it is easily forgotten. Though this text is so clear And so clearly stated, over time, somehow this passage has been altered and become misunderstood. It is rightly considered to be the great commission, but in the minds and hearts of many, it has become small. And the more I thought about this text, the more I believe this text needs to be preached, all the more in our day as we eagerly await the second return of Christ. You know, reading Adoniram Judson and his story and a little bit about, you know, that letter, it was in, in, encouraging, it was inspiring to me today. Maybe it inspired some of you as you just read it or, or listened to it this morning. And maybe you're asking, well, how do, I, how do I get that? How do I have a zeal, a greater zeal for, for disciple-making like that? And I think the zeal and the desire and the sacrifice comes as a result of taking to heart what Christ says in Matthew 28, 16 through 20. So if you, if you feel like you've been lacking in this area, if you feel like this needs to be a bigger part of your life, let me just say God's got you right where he wants you this morning. Um, but here's a warning. Just be, just be careful, right? Because taking these words to heart, it won't lead, uh, it won't allow for you to, to, to stay stagnant. It won't lead, uh, lead you to a life of, of comfort and ease, but also remember that the reward is greater than the sacrifice. Okay, so you've been warned. I have five points today uh, coming from Matthew 28, 16 through 20, so that you this morning would refocus on the mission that's at hand. So let's look at our first point. Number one, the context of the Great Commission. Context is key. It's king. It always is. It protects us from abusing the text and making it say something that it doesn't say. Uh, And and this morning, what we're after, we're after what God intended, what God's meaning uh, of this text is. You know, anytime that I preach or teach, I'm not trying to, you know, make this, uh, it's not what does this text say to me? It is what does this text say? That's what we're after. And so context is so important. And we're parachuting in. We're not parachuting into the middle of this text or this book or in the beginning of this book, but at the very end. We are skipping 27 and a half chapters of Matthew to get to where we are today. And you can all just relax because I'm not going to try to catch us up. I don't have the time, frankly. Um, but, but I need you to know this. You need to come into this knowing this very important thing, that Matthew's main emphasis in this gospel is Jesus Christ is king. He is the rightful king. He is the Christ. He's the the long-awaited-for Messiah. He, he, He is the one who was written about by the prophets of old. And so that's the general context of Matthew. How about the more immediate context? Let me reread to you our first verse here, twenty-eight, Matthew 28, 16, it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Wait a second, why Galilee? When were they directed to go to Galilee? Turn back with me to Matthew 26, 32. Maybe you've never connected these dots before. And, and, and bear with me as I set the, the table up for our text and establish the importance Of our text. Matthew 26, 32. This is the Last Supper passage where Jesus is in the upper room the night before he was betrayed, the night before his death. And Jesus says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to, pause for the cause, Galilee. All right? This is Jesus again before he goes to the cross. Before he goes to the cross, he's establishing, if you will, a meeting in Galilee. In the midst of all that's about to happen to him, he's thinking about Galilee. He's anticipating Galilee. All right, now go back to our chapter, Matthew 28, verse 6. Keep hanging with me now. Matthew 28, verse 6. Do you remember Mary Magdalene and the other Mary? They were going to the tomb, and who appears to them first? <coughs> An angel. Right, An angel who says in Matthew 28, verse 6, He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Repetition. Is it a coincidence? I think not. Right? God doesn't work that way. Now look at Matthew 28, verse 10, a couple verses uh, further. Okay, Mary and Mary, they're on their way back to tell the disciples, okay? And who appears to them? The risen Christ himself, Jesus, who in verse 10 says, do not be afraid, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. Go to Galilee, go to Galilee, go to Galilee. Why Galilee? Because that's where Jesus is going to give the Great Commission. It's where many of his followers um, lived. It's where much of Christ's ministry took place. And look at verse 10. Do you see the word, before we come up for air here, do you see in verse 10, um, Jesus says the word brothers there. Jesus says, tell my brothers. You know, Matthew uses that term a couple times in his gospel, and every time that he uses it, he's not talking about his immediate, uh, his, his closest disciples, he's talking about all his disciples. Why would I say that? Because I believe there were more than just the 11 disciples on that mountain in Galilee to receive this great commission. I want you to consider the timeline for a moment. Jesus died on the cross on Friday. He rose again on Sunday. And his last recorded appearance is in Jerusalem was eight days after his resurrection. Now it takes, I did the math and the calculation, I put it into MapQuest, it takes a week to go from Jerusalem to Galilee. And, and we see in John 20, right, that they are, instead of going to Galilee, like they were told three times, they're still in Jerusalem. And this is where Thomas sees Jesus for the first time. He doubts, but after placing his hands in the wounds of Christ, what does he say? My Lord and my God. And so despite having been told to go to Galilee three times, they're still in Jerusalem, but after the Thomas event, According to John 20, it is believed that they finally went, and that's where our text picks up. Verse 16, Matthew 28, verse 16, the text says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And verse 17 says, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now the context work that we just laid, that foundation is going to help us here. Who is the they in verse 17? Verse 17. Is it just the eleven? That wouldn't make sense, right? Because as we already mentioned, the Thomas event already took place, right? My Lord and my God, he's already said that. And so I don't think it was the eleven that doubted. I think rather it probably refers to the many disciples that were on that mountain in Galilee seeing Jesus for the very first time. The Apostle Paul actually hints at this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, when he says, then he, being Jesus, appeared to more than 500 brothers at a time. <coughs> Many commentators connect that verse in 1 Corinthians to our Great Commission text. And I think it makes sense, right, that the 11 closest disciples were, in verse 17, the ones worshiping, and, and, and the 500 may have had some mixed responses, some of them worshipped, some of them doubted. Let me just mention that word doubt there is a, is a word that means hesitate in the original language. For, for many in that crowd, they would have been, again, think about this, seeing Jesus for the very first time and maybe they, since, since his resurrection. And they, they could have been shocked. They couldn't probably believe their eyes, right? Maybe for some, they, they just didn't know how to respond. They were amazed. The one they followed, the one they loved, the one that was, was killed is he, he, he lives. And what they heard about Him being risen with their ears, they are now seeing with their eyes for the first time. And they're blown away. And so why is this, why is this context such a big deal? Why spend so much time here? I think a few reasons. Think, think with me for a moment. What is the repeated commands to go to Galilee? What is that communicating to the reader, us? What's it communicating about this Great Commission? That it is truly great, right? It is great in the eyes of Jesus who commanded them to go to Galilee multiple times. It is great in the eyes of the Spirit who inspired the Great Commission and and repeatedly mentions the Great Commission three times in the New Testament. Matthew 28, Luke 24, Acts 1. Some would even debate maybe uh, the end of Mark I think it's also important in the eyes of Matthew. Jesus, you know, the story, you know, the Ascension doesn't happen right after this in Matthew 28. The Ascension actually happens two to three weeks after Matthew 28. But but Matthew doesn't include all the other things, He he ends this account right here. He ends this account with the king giving a great commission to his followers. This mission was given to the 11 amidst the the 500. This mission was extended to the followers in the early church. This mission is extended to us today and those who come after us. This is our mission. As some have put it, this is the purpose statement of the church. And hopefully this context, it, it helps us begin to see how important this mission is to the Lord. Because if this mission was great in the eyes of Christ, who, who called for them to meet in Galilee multiple times, if it was important to him, should it be important to us this morning? You cannot fulfill the Great Commission unless you first see its divine importance. Let's look at our second point this morning the mission. What I keep saying, the mission, the mission, the mission. What is the mission? Look at verse 19. Look at your Bibles. The main verb of our text make disciples. This is, that, 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 that right there, make disciples, that's the Great Commission. And we'll talk more about what that means and how that's carried out. But first, let me just ask an important question. What is a disciple? He's a follower of Jesus Christ. In the words of Jesus himself, it is one who denies himself. They die to their, their old life, right? One who picks up their cross and they follow him. It's essentially to love Christ most. Even above your own dreams and your own goals, to love him over every relationship you have in this life. Remember he said that if you love father and mother more than me, you are not what? You are not worthy of me. D.A. Carson says a disciple is one who hears, understands, and obeys Jesus' teaching. The book of Acts um, uses uh, <coughs> disciple and Christian synonymously. You know, To be a Christian is to be a disciple. To be a disciple is to be a Christian. And one can only become a disciple of Jesus Christ through the life-changing power of the gospel. And so, this is the mission. Christ's plan is for us to take the gospel to all nations so that lost souls might hear the good news of the gospel and be saved. But you know what? If I'm on that designated mountain in Galilee somewhere, we're not sure where that that mountain is. But if I'm there amongst the the 500, you know, and the eleven. I, I'm thinking, or maybe I'll even say it out loud. Are, are you sure, Christ? Are you sure? You know, you might want to pick someone else. I mean, look at the 11. Look at the 11. They were told three times to go to Galilee, and they couldn't figure it out, right? And you want to use them and people like them to, to accomplish the greatest mission of the church? Are you, is he being serious? The mission is to take the gospel to every lost soul on the, on the planet, to every nation, foreign and domestic, to, the, to lost friends, family members, to complete strangers, to even, to even those who are considered enemies, to those in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts of the, the, the earth. The outermost parts of the earth. So what, I might have to leave home? This is no small thing that Jesus commands. And church, let me just say this to you. When other churches and other organizations, they claim to have a mission and they claim to be following the Great Commission, be discerning because you might come to realize that their mission is different than that of Christ. This mission is clear. It's not hard to understand. We don't have to alter this mission. We don't have to change it. We, don't have, we have nothing to improve on Jesus' words here. Make disciples of all nations. We cannot fulfill the Great Commission unless we first understand these clear words from the Lord. So in review, we've looked at the context of the mission to highlight its significance. We've talked about the mission itself, make disciples. I want to take us back now to verse 18. Because before we look at the three aspects of this mission and the great promise at the end, we need to be reminded of who is giving us this mission. And so we come to our third point this morning, the commissioner, verse 18. Verse 18 says, and Jesus came to them, which, which in the original means he, he drew near to them and said, all, okay? All, the word all is mentioned four times in this text, again, emphasizing the greatness of this commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I'm going to say something. I want you to to judge whether it's true or not. How you view one's authority will determine how you respond to their authority. Is that true? Teens or children in the room, if you do not respect your mother and your father as a God-given authority in your life, how is that going to reveal itself when they tell you to do something? Clean your room, right? Uh, You might not do it at all, you might do it with a horrible attitude. You might take as much stuff in your room and shove it under the deepest parts of your bed or in your closet. Not trying to give ideas, it's just speaking from experience. Or what happens when people don't respect the police and their God-given authority? Nothing good, right? So, so why does the church struggle with the Great Commission today? To put it simply, it's because we do not respect his authority in our lives. It is because we have taken our eyes off of Christ. We might say we, we have a respect for, for Jesus, but do, we, do, we, do our lives demonstrate that to be the case? So many approach the Great Commission in this nonchalant kind of, kind of laid back approach because it's something that we've been taught throughout our earliest Sunday school years. And sometimes when you hear something so much, it can, become, it can become dull in our minds and in our hearts. But let me just say, if that's, if that's you concerning the Great Commission today, let me say this to you, that not only have you become dull with the Great Commission, but you have also become dull with the one who gave you the Great Commission. And that's not, I'm not saying that to make anyone feel bad, but to wake you up for you to refocus on the mission that's at hand. And behold with me the one who has called you to something so much greater than yourself. Verse 18 is, it's so important to to understand here because no one, no one in their right mind would do what Jesus is saying here unless we see him rightly. Unless we respect his authority in our lives and in our hearts. And so let's see him rightly together. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, he's been given not some authority, but, but all authority in heaven and on earth. <laughs> what is this authority that Matthew is speaking here of? The word authority in the originals, it means the right and power to act. Something that belongs to a king. Remember, what is the main emphasis of this gospel? That Jesus Christ is king. King of heaven and earth. In other words, Jesus is king of the universe. Paul says this about our resurrected king in Ephesians 1:21. He is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the age to come. Philippians 2:9 through 11, because of his obedience, right? Because he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is no name that is above his name. He is Lord of lords, king of kings, and his rule is over everything. One pastor pastor used to say this in in his ministry, there is no rogue molecule under Christ's reign. No rogue molecule. He has been given the right to rule and the power to reign over all, whether you recognize that or not. And Matthew's gospel from beginning to end sets that up. It establishes it. Look at, you know, his right to kingship through his genealogy. Remember the magi who they were looking for. They say this, where is he who has been born, what, king of the Jews? John the Baptist's message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. (coughs) In the temptation, Satan offers Jesus as the kingdoms of the world which don't belong to him. Jesus then begins preaching on the kingdom. It's everywhere, and if you fast forward to the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 25, Jesus prophesies about himself sitting on the glorious throne that only God has the right to sit on. And he is there as king who is separating the sheep from the goats. And Pilate, you know, before his crucifixion, Pilate says, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus affirms that he is. And then our king is put to death for your sins and for my sins. And in three days' time, He rises again, conquering the grave. And the Father responds to His perfect obedience by giving Him all authority to rule and, and to reign. And that shouldn't surprise us. That, 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 that fact was prophesied about all the way back in the prophet Daniel. Daniel 17, 13, uh, 7, 13-14, which says, Daniel's saying this, I saw in the night visions, get this, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one, one that shall not be destroyed. And Jesus, in our passage, at the end of Matthew, is stating that Daniel 7, 13 through 14 has been fulfilled. (laughs) Matthew 28, 18, it's huge. It, it, It really is an exclamation point of this gospel. Don't read past it. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus Christ, is king. And so, what is your response to His kingship. What is your response this morning to to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Heir of all things, the Creator of the universe, the One who is the radiance of the glory of God, the One who sustains the, the, the universe by the Word of His power, the One who makes purification for your sins, the One who's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. What is your response to the King of the universe? He is Lord of your life whether you recognize Him to be Lord of your life or not. He can save you this morning if you put your trust in Him that He died on the cross for your sins or you can face Him one day as judge. Either way, you cannot escape His universal rule and and reign. Jesus has been given all authority. Therefore, He has every right. He has every right to tell us what to do. And get this, not only does he have the power to tell us what to do, but he has the power, he he has the authority to tell us what to do, and he has the power to see it through. Church, Jesus is building his church, and not even the red-hot gates of hell can stop him. Christ is great, this command is great, our life ought to be devoted in response to his greatness. William Carey, a, a missionary, that took the Great Commission to heart, he said, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Or John Knox, who was this fiery Scottish preacher. He he had this famous quote saying, give me Scotland or I die, right? His life revolved around the Great Commission. And these men, and there are several like them, they had a high view of the Great Commission, why? Because they had a high view of Christ. And God used them in incredible ways, all for his glory. And who is to say that God could not use us in a similar way? Give me Johnstown or I die. You cannot fulfill the Great Commission unless you respect the supreme authority of the commissioner. You know, I wish I could sit here on this point some some more. It's something that we always need more of to behold Christ, to cherish him. You know, and think about the other disciplines that we've covered thus far. If you don't cherish Christ, you're not going to read His Word. You don't, if you don't cherish Christ, you're not going to pray. If you don't cherish Christ, you're going to cherish yourself. If you don't cherish Christ, you're not going to make disciples. <laughs> Let's move on to point number four, the three aspects of the mission. Three aspects of the mission. Point number four, there is one mission with three aspects. Each aspect is needed and required to obey the Lord's command to make Disciples. The first aspect is found in verse 19. It is the word go, to go, or it could be rendered having gone. And let me just say, uh, you know, PD mentioned the, uh, a grammar word simile earlier. So I, I get one grammar word to share with you as well today. Uh, participles. Ooh, okay. These three aspects are three participles, okay? They all express what it means to make disciples, and they should be seen as commands all right? Jesus tells his disciples to go, not to stay, but to go, right? And it's interesting to consider some of Christ's disciples and where they ended up. You know, John, he went to Ephesus in Asia Minor. Peter went to Italy. A lot of people believe that Thomas ended up in India. You know, the Apostle Paul, not one of the originals, but uh, disciples, uh, the close disciples, but we know that (coughs) he had missionary journeys everywhere, right? And some of the the disciples of Christ, they they did the go command right there in Jerusalem. And what did God use, Uh, pop quiz, what did God use as a great push to go and fulfill the Great Commission, church? I'm hearing it. Persecution. Persecution. Persecution forced the church to spread throughout the world, which allowed the gospel to spread throughout the world, right? And let me just sit on that for a second to the followers of of Johnstown, uh, Christ in Johnstown. You know, tough circumstances, unfortunate circumstances sometimes can allow for the gospel to be shown in ways that couldn't happen otherwise. It made me think about Johnstown this week. How many times I hear these words due to intel coming in. I hate what's going on in our town. Our town's gonna get swallowed up by New Albany. Our town will be ridden with crime and all sorts of problems. Johnstown will never be the same. I don't know how much longer I can live here. I just want to go find some place really far away and get away from everyone. Some people that said that were saying that even before Intel came. But (laughs) these are the words that we hear nonstop from the community, but even from this church. But church, may we hear the words of Christ this morning. To, to go. To, to, it, it seems like the whole world is coming to Johnstown. Thousands upon 1000s were told. And our response should be this. Our response should be, may all my comforts, may all my preferences, may all my conveniences of living, of small-town living, be, con, be, be counted as loss or rubbish or dung for the sake of taking the gospel to the world. How great the opportunity will be when, when, when everyone comes to Johnstown or the surrounding area so that we can go and point lives to Jesus Christ. We don't have to go far. The world's coming here. And, 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 and may, may this, it's right there. May the sign on our, the, the, the words on our sign and the, and the words right there, may they mean something, Right? that they're not just there because it's a cool slogan, but, 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 but may it actually be true of us that we point lives to Jesus Christ because it's, 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 it's what Jesus calls for us here to do. What if all of us here this morning, what if we were to go? What if we were to go to our workplace? What if we were to go into our schools, kids? What if we were to go uh, into our homes, parents? And if we were to go to other countries, think of how God could use us for His kingdom, for His glory. I still believe that God can do far more abundantly than we can ask or think according to the power at work within us. And if you believe that as well, you can't stay. You have to go. This is the first aspect. The second aspect is to be baptized baptize. (coughs) Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The word baptize, it doesn't mean sprinkle. It means to immerse. Amen. Right? We're a Baptist church. Um, The point of baptism, though, is to make a public confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, right? That He saved you from your sins. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, baptism, it it should be encouraged for, for you to get baptized as soon as possible. Not as a matter of salvation, but it's a matter of obedience, obeying the Lord. I learned it this way. It's an outward expression of what God has done inwardly in your heart. I like how PD phrases it. You are telling everyone publicly that you are identifying yourself with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Notice from our text, what name are you being baptized into? Notice, too, the name. The word name is in singular here. Singular, the name singular of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. What do we see here? who do we see here? The Trinity, right? One God, one name, and three distinct persons. You know, the the book of uh, Ephesians in chapter 1 tells us that each member of the Trinity has a part to play in our salvation, that God the Father chooses us before the foundation of the world, the the Son redeems us by the washing of His blood, and then the Spirit seals us, right? The true disciple of Jesus Christ is not to keep his or her alliances to the king, secret go against the great commission, go against his commands for us. Our faith is to be publicly displayed, which starts at baptism. And the person who refuses to be baptized, except for the, on, on the basis of some extreme medical circumstance or some other circumstance, is being disobedient. I'm going to share these, these Uh, tough words here, but I think they're true. Um, One commentator went as far to say this, if a person persists in their unwillingness to be baptized, there is a reason to doubt the genuineness of their faith. If they are unwilling to comply with that simple act of obedience in the presence of fellow believers, they will hardly be willing to stand for Christ before the unbelieving world. And he quotes the words of Jesus in Matthew 10, 32 through 33, which says, So, everyone who acknowledges me, this is Jesus speaking, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So, church, we are to take the gospel to the world, which requires going. When God does a work in a person's heart, they are to be baptized. And it doesn't stop there. The last aspect of this mission is to teach. Go, baptize, and teach. The new believer isn't just left to figure it out. Praise God. But they are to be taught. What are they to be taught? Jesus says here, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. All of Scripture is to be taught. Do you see the word all here? Even the Old Testament. Consider Jesus' ministry. I think it's in chapter 5. Be discerning. Uh, The Sermon of the Mount. Okay, Jesus says He's not come to abolish the law, but to what? To fulfill it, right? Uh, And He he promises to preserve His Word, and He he has, and He will continue to do so. All of Scripture trains us up in righteousness. It makes us complete and, and equipped for every good work. And that includes, get this, the hard passages. That includes the uncomfortable passages. That includes the confronting passages of Scripture. Finding a church that teaches faithfully the Word of God, and seeks to equip the saints for the work of ministry, is so critically important. And yet it is so hard to find today. In a day and age where pastors are way too consumed with themselves and their popularity, to be further like they, they take to tickling ears and becoming life coaches, that's not pointing people to Christ, that's pointing people to themselves. It is the pastor's calling to accurately handle the word of God and to preach Christ. And if you sit under someone who preaches themselves, if you sit under someone that has a low view of God and his word, they are not pastors. Do not sit under such men. This teaching is to start with the pastors of of your church who are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And it is not just the pastor's job to teach but for parents to teach their children, for the spiritually mature women in a church to teach younger women, for spiritually uh, mature older men to teach younger men. There is always someone who knows less than you do, that you can teach truth to. And I would encourage you to seek out those opportunities, whether it be in your homes, Sunday school, Awanas, et cetera. There ought to be more teaching and discipleship in our churches today, a desire to grow, a desire to see others grow so that they too can make more disciples. Let me be clear, the goal of our teaching should not be to create lifeless Christians that just know more, to, to have more smarter sinners, but rather to be doers of the word, right? That the word would saturate their minds and hearts and, get this, their lives. I like how one pastor said it, that the goal of our teaching is not to inform, but transform which, of course, the Holy Spirit does through His Word. The Great Commission is to make disciples of all nations, and that cannot be fulfilled unless we go, baptize, and teach. When does this mission stop? The mission ends when He comes back to rule and to reign physically on earth. So, church, examine yourselves. What mission have you been following? Whose authority have you submitted to? There is a reason why we call this passage the Great Commission. It's not small in any way. It's not small in its extent. It's not small in who gave it to us. It's not small in the work that's required. <clears throat> and that's why Jesus ends the way that He does. But before I get there, let me just review the context to the mission to show its importance. The mission itself, to make disciples. Number three, the commissioner, The one who has all authority. Number four, the three aspects of the mission. To go, baptize, teach. Point number five, I kind of ran out of time with this last one. Uh, You could put kind of whatever you want as long as it has this flavor. Mission possible, not mission impossible. That's not great. Okay, but it says here, look at the text. That's more important. And behold, I am with you, Jesus says, always to the end of the age. The mission isn't possible because we're involved, right? I think that's obvious, or at least it should be, right? Not even Tom Cruise himself could, you know, complete this mission by himself, right? It is only because of the all-powerful, all-sovereign Lord who is with us. You know, a neat thing that I never realized about the gospel of Matthew is this, that the gospel, this gospel bookends itself with the title Emmanuel, God with us. What do I mean by that? Well, Matthew one twenty three quotes Isaiah's prophecy that there would be one who would come and be God with us, Emmanuel. And notice here, Jesus is making a promise that He will continue to be our Emmanuel even after He leaves. All the days of our life to the end of the age. (coughs) Literally, Literally, the text could be rendered in the Greek. Listen to this. He is with us the whole of every day. That's how it could be rendered. To the end of the age. That's an incredible promise. To the end of the age. That that includes us, church, because this age isn't over yet, and it includes those who come after us until Jesus comes back. Such a great king, such a great mission, such a great promise a promise that should assure us, comfort us, and motivate us to go and make disciples of every nation. William Carey again, he says, the future is as bright as the promises of God. No matter how dim things get in this life, He is with us, and He has made great promises to us, and our future is more glorious than you could even imagine. And so, we go to all the world as ambassadors of the King boldly proclaiming the good news of the gospel, may we take this mission to heart in our lives, all for His glory. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, ignite in us a desire to take the gospel to the world, to see lives saved and forever changed, that we would, that we would treasure You above all else, that we would that we would go, that we would baptize, that that we would teach, that we would trust that You are with us always to the very end. It's in Your glorious name we pray. Amen.